let me uh, let me just say a couple things about what just happened. Uh, we we as a community just engaged in what we were made for. Uh, for those of you that are seasoned Christ followers, I think maybe you sense something was going on in here, and it's still going on in here. And uh, for those of you that may be new to the journey, I really encourage you to, to lean in. Don't miss what the Lord has for you. I promise you that uh, what just happened wasn't musical, and uh, what's about to happen in these words is not Randy, that the Lord is here today, and he has something for you. And so will you see it? You know, I loved uh, the, uh, the character Chili Palmer. You know who I'm talking about? No? What was the movie? Get Shorty, yeah. And he goes, look at me. No, lo- no, look at me. And uh, he sees the power of seeing. And what I'm going to challenge you today to do is to look, to open your eyes. We've been talking about Joshua and the journey of being a leader. And we've talked about how a leader is teachable, that a leader listens, a leader is present, a leader incorporates the, the gift of endurance and uh, the process, the leader recognizes that they're in the desert, the leader also uh, acknowledges that God has given them a voice. And we've been talking about all these things, and today we're going to talk about that a leader has eyes to see. And as a leader, and we believe that all of you are being called to lead, whether it's in your own life with Christ, that you're applying the disciplines of coming here this morning and saying to your spirit, awaken, God is here today, Uh, or whether you're in a family and you've got to bring gifts of leadership to your children or where they're at work, and some of you are called in this community to bring leadership into this community, because if this is your first time at Midtown, I want to encourage you that uh, the Lord is the leader of Midtown, and we are the church, Uh, I'm not the church. I'm just a part of it, and I'm just using my gifts, and God wants you to use your gifts too. So today, I want us to step into seeing, and God is into what we're going to call this morning monuments, that there are things in our lives that that we have, or things that I have in my life. For example, if you go into my office, you're going to see on the window seal these perfectly smooth round stones that, uh, that I collected from the beach of Northern Ireland. And that trip, that was my first trip to Northern Ireland, and uh, God did remarkable things. And on that trip, the Lord kind of awoken me. Is that the right word? Awakened me? I was in slumber. And the Lord brought me to the the power of prayer. It was powerful. So every time I see those stones, I remember, oh, yeah, that was the Northern Ireland uh, prayer season. Then I have a picture, if you'll notice on my wall, if you come in, you'll see a picture of me in a tuxedo dancing with my daughter when she was like three years old. And that was my brother's wedding. And I was like, and whenever I see that, I'm like, I'm just reminded of how much I love my daughter and, you know, and she's a teenager now and how much easier it was to be her father when she was three. And, uh, you know, but my brother and his wife and all his kids, you know, and even like, like, I've got a monument on right now, this bracelet. Uh, Maggie and I bought matching bracelets because we went to Africa together this summer. And uh, we bought these in the market in Kampala before we left because we were trading them out for bracelets that we had bought before we went because we made an agreement, we're going to be servants. And so she bought us these bracelets that we wore that we would serve together. And every time we would see them, hey, serve. Okay, we're servants. 
bracelets, you know? And so we served, and these bracelets are, we're tired of being servants, and now we want all of you to serve us. No, it's just memories, and you've got them too, right? I mean, some of you have tattoos that signify a moment in your life or an event in your life or something significant that you've got a monument on your body that says this was a season, or some of you have trophies uh, or, you know, maybe some of you ran the marathon yesterday and you've got a medallion now and you're hanging that. I did it. You know, that memory or something significant. And some of you have T-shirts, you know, been there, done that. Some of you have T-shirts that you never did. The rest of us know that. Uh, but all of us have kind of pictures or photographs. And so I thought I would pull out of my family album a few pictures uh, this morning to kind of show you some of the monuments that I have that signifies significant moments in my life, just to show how we put monuments up. So, uh, can you see that? The, <laughs> we, somebody may need to hit the lights. Can we get a, a light, light person? That, what? Go, 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 go. Right, I see how you guys are so into this this morning, all right? Yes, steer it, steer it. Love that. Oh, yes. Sure you have a photo like this in your life. (laughs) Stacked denim. That's bizarre. That's a little weird, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Guess where the material came from. I know. (laughs) That's it. But you know, we all have things like that, uh, that we're embarrassed of, but let's go to Joshua chapter four. Because what we're going to read about is a, uh, a monument that Joshua was commanded by God to put into place. Chapter 4, verse 1. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed for the Israelites one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it crosses the Jordan... The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried over with them to their camp where they put them down. And Joshua set up 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. 
Now jump with me over to verse 19. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal at the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. So we see this picture here of uh, God commanding Joshua. Uh, Remember last week we talked about how the priest went into the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the Jordan The Jordan stopped flowing. It was in flood stage, and all the people crossed over on dry land. And now now the Lord is commanding Joshua to go back to the center of the river where the priests are standing, gather 12 stones, carry them over to where they were going to stay that night, and build a monument out of them. So you got this picture of 12 strong guys. They're heaving these big stones up on their shoulders, and they're carrying them over to Gilgal where Joshua is going to stack them one on top of the other. So to kind of fill out the picture a little bit more, they're, they're going to Gilgal. If you read the rest of that chapter, there were three tribes that were commanded to take the men and put them in armor and take their spears and their swords and to go ahead of everybody else. 40,000 soldiers went out to protect the crossing because they didn't know if the enemy, the seven tribes that inhabited the Promised Land, were going to attack them as soon as they came over the Jordan River. So this vast army goes ahead of them, and they're standing guard, and everybody else is coming over, and, and they're starting to realize that we've been rescued from the desert, and we've been those that are coming into the promised land. And here's what's interesting. As soon as they, the priests stepped out of the Jordan, the water flowed again. Can you imagine thinking about that just for a second? If you were one of those people, you realized there's no going back now. The Jordan, which cut us off from the promised land, now is the Jordan that cuts us off from retreat. And so they move into their camp of Gilgal, and and Joshua starts to stack these massive stones in the middle of their camp. And what's amazing about these, these stones is they really are miracle stones. Imagine, just for a minute, you're sitting around the camp that night, and you're eating, you just had this experience of crossing over the Jordan with your family, and you're watching Joshua stack these stones, and you're going, yeah, those stones this morning were in the middle of the Jordan. And the reason they're miracle stones is because if any of us went to the Jordan right now to try to get a stone that size out of the Jordan, it would be impossible for us to do. And what was impossible for us to do was only possible because God stopped the Jordan. And when God stopped the Jordan, we retrieved the stones. These were miracle stones. And they were, they were stones that told a story, weren't they? They were storytelling stones. Because everybody's going to remember what happened. And they're also stones that proclaim power, that God is powerful and can do what we can't do. And they were stones that give hope. Because they're surrounded by their enemies now, and they're looking at these stones and saying, well, if God could stop the Jordan, if God could put miracle stones in our camp, then it's possible that he can empower us to overcome our enemy and we can live in the promised land. Right? So three things God said to do with these stones. Use them to remember, 
Use them to tell your children and use them to proclaim to the world that I'm God. So what does that have to do with us this morning? I mean, what would you think if I brought in uh, 12 giant stones this morning and we were going to stack them right here in the middle of the room? If you're like me, you'd probably be afraid because uh, with our history of things like chairs, those stones would probably fall over and crush half of you and make a huge mess and tear up the floor and we'd owe Rocket Town a bunch of money. So we're not going to build a monument of stone. Matter of fact, I think that the stone monument days are over. And let me try to explain to you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. It's in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament. If you've got a house Bible, somebody can shout it out. Give me a page number. 682. In chapter 17, in verse 1, here's the story of Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up to a mountain to pray. And something remarkable happens while they're up there on that mountain, uh, that Jesus begins to ascend. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? He begins to ascend, and what begins to descend from the skies are two people. Um, It's Moses and Elijah. And right there, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured and glowing and and existing now with the prophet Moses and the prophet Elijah. And and they're conversing together. And you can imagine what's going on with Peter, James, and John. Well, everybody is awestruck except for Peter, of course, who always seemed to have something to say in every situation, and usually it was inappropriate. Do you have a friend like that? Uh, Verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Wow, that's so profound, isn't it? If you wish, I think that's just so funny. Because he's looking at Jesus. Jesus is just glowing with Moses and Elijah, all right? And he's saying to Jesus, get the grasp of this. I will make your wish come true. Okay, that doesn't strike you as as funny as it did me. But if you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What is he saying is he's looking at Jesus and saying, I will build the sweetest monuments that you have ever seen. Now, this ties to the Israelites' uh, festival of the booths, which you can go read about at another time and understand a little bit more about what Peter was saying. But he was basically saying, we're going to commemorate this moment by me building these three shelters, these three monuments, that on this day, something so significant, so profound, so life-changing happened that we're never going to forget it. Listen to what Jesus says. Uh, If I can find it. Verse 9. He says to them, don't tell anybody what you've seen. Don't make a monument. Don't even tell anybody until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, this is kind of odd because in the Old Testament, we see that God is really big on monuments. He's really big on building something to proclaim that God was here, the temple, all kinds of things that God was building. We get to the New Testament, and even those that are offering to build stuff for Jesus, he's turning them down. He says, hey, don't worry about it. Matter of fact, don't do it. And the reason that he's turning Peter down is because God has something different in mind. That God is still into monuments, and Jesus is into monuments, but Jesus didn't come to have a monument made for him. Jesus came to be the monument builder. 
He came to build something. Look over on verse, uh, in chapter 16. Just turn over to the left. In verse 18... He says, I tell you, he's talking to Peter again, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, now let me explain what he's saying here. Peter means rock, but he's saying to Peter, not on you the rock. He's pointing to himself and he says, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That Jesus proclaims something to Peter that is profound and that is that Jesus came to build something. He came to build his own monument. He came to build the church. And it's a labor of love. And he is the builder. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, Paul says very clearly, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one can do this. Only Christ. He is the master architect. You know, have you ever been to Chicago, uh, Sears Tower? We were there a couple of summers ago, and uh, you can go up uh, their elevators, their massive elevators, and go to the 103rd floor, and they have their observation deck. Has anybody been up there? A few of you have been? Let me tell you what it's like. It's, it used to be one of the tallest buildings in the world. I think it's, uh, it's not anymore, but it's tall. And when you're standing at the street level and you're looking up, uh, there, it does no justice to when you step out of the elevator on the 103rd floor and you can actually feel the building move. And you can see you're just towering over all of Chicago and you can see Lake Michigan. But that's nothing compared to when you walk over to the window and there's an observation booth. And what that is, it's a plexiglass booth that extends this far out from the side of the building. And you can actually step out on the plexiglass and look straight down, and there's nothing but you in the plexiglass. Yes? Okay, here's what's funny, and I think I still have video of this. Uh, we were waiting in line, because you have to wait in line to scare yourself. And this one woman was standing, and she was so overwhelmed and overcome by the magnitude and the awesomeness of this experience which was provided for her by a master architect that she collapsed onto her rear end right there on the plexiglass. And she froze. And her husband was like, honey, get up. (laughs) And she was like, I don't think I can move. I mean, she was terrified. And she just kind of, he turned her around and she just kind of, wiggled her way off the plexiglass back into the secure room. I mean, she was overwhelmed by by the awesomeness of this massive building that provided an experience to where she got to literally feel, to some extent, the height and this architectural wonder. I was looking it up. That... Do you know, it's kind of odd, but they have 796 bathrooms in the Sear Tower, or the Willis Tower. I don't know why I found that bizarre. (laughs) That building was designed by a guy named Graham and a guy named Khan who used uh, some revolutionary new uh, tube technology to build this tower. Go read about it. It's pretty amazing back in 1969. And as amazing as that building is... Here's what I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is building something better. 
as awestruck as we are when we see that building, as leaders, when we begin to open our eyes to see what Christ is doing, the Willis Tower has nothing in comparison. Let's continue to read in 1 Corinthians. This is verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, you will des- God will restore, destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. Get this. You hear what he's saying here? If we're in Christ, we now have become the temple of God and we are sacred. Like, have you said that to yourself in the mirror lately? Whew. You just shaved or you brush your hair. Wow, you are a sacred fox. I mean, do you use that language with yourself? Do you see yourself that way? You are sacred. You are that temple. That's what it says right there in 1 Corinthians. See, we are the church. If we are in Christ, we are the church. And let me tell you what the church is not. Let me just take a second. A church is not the crowd. I mean, there's a lot of people here this morning, and we're all crowded in. And I'm telling you that we can easily get... uh, get distracted from the understanding of what the church is because we're overwhelmed by the crowd. And there are churches that draw massive, massive crowds. Let me tell you something about a crowd. A crowd typically comes to be entertained. A crowd is together as long as the purpose of that crowd exists, which is give us what we want. We went uh, several years ago to the Lollapalooza Festival. Have any of y'all ever been to that? We're it was the Blues Travelers and Lenny Kravitz before he cut off his dreads, and it was crazy. This was down in Miami, and it, thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. And we were like this, we were like this united community of people that were drinking in the music of Lenny Kravitz. And it was crazy because, man, he put on a wild show. Like halfway through his show, he jumped off his stage and just started running through the crowd. And security is trying to catch up with him, you know, and people are reaching for his dreads, and he doesn't care, man. He's just, it's nuts, and the crowd's just going, <sighs> and he's running all the way back to the cheap sheet seats, and he makes all his way, and when he gets back up on the stage, the crowd is just like, <sighs> you know what I mean? Have you ever been in a show where that's happened, where you just can't take it? It's just so good. And on the drive home, what did we talk about? Wow, I can't wait to get in bed. I am so tired. We weren't a crowd anymore. We had nothing that united us. We were united for a short season by that which entertained us. And what's amazing is when you read the New Testament, Jesus was never interested in the crowd. Matter of fact, he was always suspicious of the crowd because he knew what was in the hearts of people. If you go and you read the story of where Jesus fed the 5,000, you know, where they have the little basket of fishes and loaves and he breaks those, where did those fishes and loaves come from? It came from a little kid who said, hey, I'll give you my lunch. Well, there was 5,000 people there. Did nobody else in the crowd have anything that they had to raid the pocket of a little kid? Jesus knew the heart of a crowd. Remarkable, isn't it? Because a crowd is never generous. But the church is a very different thing. Because a church is not just a crowd. A church, well, we'll talk about that in just a second. Let me tell you what else a church is not. It's not a building. And we see steeples all over Nashville. And we call it the church. Oh, yeah, that's First Presbyterian Church. Or, oh, yeah, that's First Baptist Church. Or, oh, yeah, that, you know, 
We do that, but that's not the church. The church isn't a building. And a church is not a denomination either. You know, buildings and denominations, they're, they're like shovels in the hands of God. He uses them as tools. But when we define our, the church and limit it by Presbyterian or Baptist or Pentecostal, when we limit it that way, then we don't understand the church. And when we limit it by a building, like, or I go there, or I go there, we lose sight of what the Lord is doing and what the church is. This morning, before I came here, I prayed with three different pastors across the country from three different denominations. Isn't that crazy? Men that I call my brothers that are preaching in vastly different churches than Midtown, from vastly different experiences, but how God is using our journey together to encourage one another. And finally, let me say this, what the church is not. The church is not Randy's church. I mean, we have got to get over this cult of personality that we often have that, you know, I like this preacher or I like that preacher as if we're coming crowding together to find some guy that will get up and speak in a way that I can endure to listen to for 30 minutes and not go to sleep. This is not my church. Matter of fact, let me tell you a couple of things about me. I'm a lot worse than you think I am. And if you hear something that's a bad rumor about me, well, it may be true or it may not be true, but what you should be concerned is the stuff you don't know about me. Because if I told you the stuff that you don't know about me, that would shock you more than the stuff that you could possibly hear about me because I keep that other stuff so well hidden in a vault that nobody's going to touch it. Don't you? Yeah? Thank you, Todd, my fellow sinner. And let me tell you something that's true. Uh, I may be great from a distance, uh, but the closer you get, I'm like those mirrors in the makeup department at Macy's, that when, you're, when you get close enough, you, your face looks like the crater of the moon, you know? Like, good Lord, what was that? Is that, a, you know, is that a blackhead or is that an alien invasion or something? The closer you get to me, I'm going to tell you some things that are going to happen. You and I are going to seek each other's forgiveness on a constant basis. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt you. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to shatter all the pretense you have about what a preacher should be. Because I do it with myself. <laughs> I'm not the church. I'm a part of the church. The real church. The church that Jesus is building is a church of every color, every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. It is a collection of God's people from around the world. And let me tell you what we have in common. We are the ragtag, ragamuffin circus of those who used to be. We are the broken. We are the shattered. We are the forgotten. We are the unqualified. We are those that don't have, that he has brought into the camp as those that now have. We are the nothings that God has rescued. He has redeemed. He's made into a holy nation. He has made us into a royal priesthood. That is the church. Those who call him Lord because he has radically transformed their lives from what they weren't to what they now are. That is the church. That is what we are. And if Christ is your Lord, you are a part of the church. I love these shows where they take old cars and restore them. I, I don't even know what they're called. You know, where like they kidnap somebody's car, you know, or they pretend like it got stolen and it's like a 19, you know, 
tin, you know, Camaro or something. And it's just, it's got like plants growing in the back seat. And then they turn it into this like showstopper, $50,000 restored, you know, muscle car. And you're like, woo, yeah. And you look at that and you go, wow, what a transformation from shattered, broken, uh, don't run very well to the, it stinks to all this kind of stuff to this car that everybody envies and wants and loves. And if we could have that, then I could buy a house if I sold that, you know, what a transformation that is not what Jesus is doing. That's not the work of Jesus. Jesus is not taking the old broken down car and transforming me in such a way to where I run in a way that I was meant to run. That's not, what Je- That's not what Jesus says he's done. He's not making us better people. Jesus is not the salt on your salad of life. Jesus is not the bacon bits and the croutons that make your salad of living so much sweeter. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus takes what we are not and makes us what we could never be without him. We are miracle stones. Come on, grasp this, people. Look into this. We are the stones that have been plucked from the river of death, and we have been radically transformed and placed as a monument to the work of Jesus Christ, and he calls us his church, and he calls us his bride. We are the stories. You are the story. You are the one that now declares and proclaims the power of God because he's worked in your life. We are the ones that give hope to this world. Do you see it? Seriously. Do you see it? Because leaders have eyes to see what other people can't see. 1 Peter chapter 2 And this is verse 4. Write that down. Go back and read it. You can turn quickly. As you come to him, the living stone. He's talking about Jesus now. Jesus is a living stone. And that stone was rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like you also, underline you, 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 do you see? (laughs) You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones. Jesus is building a monument with living stones. And what do living stones do? That's such a weird question to ask. I mean, because does anybody know a living stone? I know people who are living stoned. That was easy. I'm sorry. What would it look like for us as a community? Midtown, as a specific slice and a unique picture of the work of Christ as his church. What would it look like if we believed that we are the monument that Jesus is building? That we're the church that Jesus is building? That he's the Lord of this community? I think the first thing that we would do is we'd see each other differently. See, before me, I don't see a bunch of messes, even though you are. 
I don't see a bunch of inconsistent people, even though you are. I mean, look at each other. (laughs) I see what's beautiful. I see the work of Jesus. I see a group of people, even if it's just half-heartedly, gathering together this morning to speak and to sing the name of Christ, to be reminded, to be encouraged. Maybe people here this morning, they don't even know if God exists, but you've gathered with the hope that maybe this morning God will speak to you, that God somehow will reveal himself. Maybe some of you are carrying burdens in here so heavy that you can't even talk about them because it would wreck you. And you bring them in here this morning saying, I need Jesus. I see a beautiful community of living stones. And Paul did too in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. No one. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is not a restored old car. He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Living stones. You know what happens when I see you differently? I smell you differently. Now let me explain that. And if you've never done this, wow, I'm going to challenge you to do this. Take somebody from this community and take them to lunch. And just say, okay, give it to me. And I give you what? Just give me the story. Bring me up to speed. Tell me what's going on in your life. And here's what I want you to do as they start to talk. Holy Spirit, let me smell you in this conversation. This is so beautiful because here's what happens. When I start looking at you as a living stone, as the church that has been redeemed, as a holy priesthood, as the temple of the living spirit of God, when I start seeing you that way, I start seeing you that way. And here's what happens. Yeah, when you confess your sin, yeah, yeah, okay, 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 you're forgiven. And then I start to draw out of you the spirit. I start to draw those beautiful things out of you. I start to see those things that maybe you can't even see. Have you ever been in a conversation where someone has just stopped and just, huh, and they've, they've drawn something out of you that you didn't even know was there, and it just wrecks you? You're like, you're, you're right. I can sing, you know? I love it when y'all do that for me. I dare you to do that with somebody. Because here's what happens. Living stones smell living stones. We do it. If we believe it, we'll start seeing it in each other and drawing it out of one another and start drawing out what's beautiful. And let me tell you something else. I need it. And I know you do too. Because I'm telling you, a life where people aren't doing that in me, it's very hard for me to believe that I'm a living stone, that God is working in my life, that he's powerful in my life. The second thing that we do when we, if this community started to believe that we were living stones, that we are the monument that Jesus is building, that we are the storytellers, that we are the ones that are professing his power and we're giving hope to the community around us because we are stacked together in a, in a monument, we would start to see ourselves differently. I wouldn't only see you differently, I would see myself differently. What does that look like? Huh. 
I'm a living stone. I've been redeemed. He chased me down from all of eternity because his love compelled him to do so. That God, before the creation of the world, knew your name, get a hold of that. The one who created the trillions of stars and knows their names knew your name. And God, in all his affection and his love for you, could not, could not exist in all his glory and power knowing that if something was not done, you could not call him father and he could not call you son. And Jesus, he sent his son. God became flesh to redeem us. And as he's going to the cross, he knows he's going there for me. For the joy set before him, I am the bride. And I've said this before, you know, if you go to a wedding, I want to encourage you to do something. When the bride appears in the back of the room, don't turn around and look at her. All brides in this room are going to hate me for that. I know. Look at the groom. Because she is never more beautiful than she is in the face of the groom. Because at that moment when he is wrecked, realizing that the, the desire, all my affection, the one that I could not believe I will spend the rest of my life with, the one that I love more than I love my own life, there is never a moment in time more than a wedding where a guy will take a bullet for a woman. I mean, it would just happen. If somebody came in randomly, you know, somebody take a bullet, the groom's there. I'll take it. Two years later, who knows, all right? But at that moment... <laughs> Because he is singularly devoted to his bride. And that's the picture. See, Jesus didn't invent weddings so that we'd have something really cool to do when we fall in love. Jesus invented weddings because he wanted us to see what it looks like, his love for us. It's the other way around. Jesus didn't use the illustration of weddings going, wow, that's a really cool illustration. Let's use that for us, God. That's not what happened. God said, they need a picture. They need to see. They need to understand. So let's take the way that they were made, that where they long to be loved and to love and to be in intimacy with another person, and let's create that so that they would understand when I say, you are my bride, that you will see how beautiful you are in my face. What would happen? Now you think about that. And then finally... I think if we as a community started to believe that the monument that Joshua built was just a shadow for the reality that the great builder is Jesus and you're a block that he has put together in a monument of his power, of his remembrance, and his hope, that we would begin to flex. Let me explain. This is uh, Teresa of Avalé. Maybe you're familiar with her writings. She said, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. You are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. You are the feet with which he walks to do good. You are the hands with which he blesses all the world. You are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body, not but yours. We begin to understand that we are the living stones. We are the body of Christ. How can you not spend that kind of currency? 
How can you stack that kind of money up in the spare bedroom in your house and pretend like you have nothing? How can can you continue to live poor when he has given you the riches of the kingdom of heaven? How can we do that? We can't. When we begin to see that we're the living stones, it changes the way we see each other and what we draw out of one another. It changes what we see in ourselves and what we draw out of ourselves. And it changes what we do with these, with these, with these, with these, with these, this. A few weeks ago, the African mission team got together to host a time of worship and reminiscing about our trip. And it was great because, you know, I'm sitting there and I know these people and Katie and Eric and Laura are up there leading worship and Marissa is leading our team and welcoming everybody and different members of the team are getting up and giving testimony and we're seeing pictures and there's tears of compassion. Our hearts are on fire. People are burning to see God work in marvelous ways. It's the body of Christ and it was beautiful. It was profound because when the body flexes, it changes the world that we live in. Your love for one another, the healing that we bring, the service that we bring, the caring that we bring, the giving that we bring. We are the body of Christ. Ernest Salscott said this, The holiest moment of the church's service is the moment when God's people, strengthened by preaching and sacraments, go out of the church doors into the world to be the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. Really? Let's pray for a second. Lord, it's so true that We take uh, this world and um, we swallow so much that it has to say to us, we limit ourselves by our own resources. We limit our dreams by what we believe we can and cannot do. We limit the way we love the people sitting around us by fear and self-protection. We limit, Father, the way we even see ourselves because of the shattered wounds that maybe we've had throughout our past. But Jesus, now that we see that, that you are the one that takes the knot and makes it is, that you take the nothing and you create living stones, And you call us your church, your bride, the one that you have set your affection upon. How can we not be a community that tells the story? How can we not be people that proclaim your power? How can we not be those, Father, that say to the world, behold our God? So, Lord, step into our journey now. Midtown, as you begin to pray, we're going to just play some music for a couple of minutes and let you have this time of listening and responding. What is God saying to you this morning? He's here. What is he speaking to you? Listen to what he has for you. Do you see others differently? Do you see yourself differently? Do you see yourself 
as a community of those who flex together. Also use this time to respond. How would you respond to what God is teaching you this morning? How would you respond to his truth? Repentance? Maybe the word yes? Generosity? Seeking forgiveness? How would he lead you? For you are the church. The ones that have been made sacred. For we have been forgiven and made holy. And we are his beloved.